This is kpcradio.com, the voice of Los Angeles Pierce College. We are broadcasting from Woodland Hills, California on 2.4 and 5 gigahertz. You are listening to Electronic Echoes, an exploration into the world of shortwave radio. The magic of shortwave radio is not confined to massive governmental organizations, religious groups, or commercial stations. With a bit of education, understanding, and equipment, anyone can become an amateur radio operator and can talk to all kinds of people around the world. From locals in the same city, to amateurs all around the world, to even the International Space Station and beyond. My guest for today is Marty Wall, N6VI, who has been an amateur radio for over 53 years and has been a frequent speaker at radio clubs and conventions. He is a retired CPA with a major in an accounting with a major accounting firm. He has an extra class amateur license and has served as a vice director for the Southern, so, Southwestern Division of the Amateur Radio Relay League, ARRL. During his over nine-year tenure, he served on various committees in the ARRL and has been deep in the heart of amateur radio. Hello and welcome to the show, Marty. I'm glad to have you here today. Hello, Aaron. It's nice to be here with you. Same. Before we can get into the specifics, we got to find a lot of these terms that are in amateur radio that are very, very specific. So first, could you please explain what is a ham band and why does it matter? Sure. Uh, the amateur radio service is a licensed service and the Federal Communications Commission or FCC basically regulates the all the non-governmental radio usage in the United States and its territories. Uh, it sets aside certain frequencies for uh, certain services. For example, uh, if you have an AM radio uh, goes from 530 to 1700 and some kilohertz, okay? That segment of the radio spectrum is set aside for AM broadcast services and they license the various uh, uh, stations. Then you have uh, uh, shortwave broadcasting, uh, which is one broadcasting, by the way, it means one way communication. Amateurs do not broadcast. We transmit, but we don't broadcast because we only we always transmit in expectation of a reply on the radio. So there are foreign, uh, there are broadcast stations, uh, uh, for example, Voice of America and others. Uh, and of course, the United States is one of many countries that use those shortwave broadcast bands, and uh, then. For the amateur service, the FCC set aside little slices of spectrum from just above the AM broadcast band going all the way up through microwaves and actually into light. And each of these little segments has different characteristics and can be used for different purposes. Um, now, anybody can listen on any of the amateur bands or actually any of the HF bands. You don't need a license. But to transmit, 
within those frequency segments that are authorized for amateur radio use, uh, you do need an amateur radio license. And there are, there are three classes of license, each one giving you additional privileges from the one before. Yes. And speaking of classes, could you please explain the differences between the beginner, I believe it's the technician class. That's right. Uh, up to the extra the amateur extra class. Sure. Amateur extra, which is the sure. highest. There used to actually be six categories, and they've kind of condensed them over the years. Uh, we used to start out in a, what's called a novice class, and you were only allowed uh, a limited amount of power, I think 75 watts, and uh, you had to be crystal controlled on your transmitter, and it had to be only on certain little segments of the HF bands, and you had to use only Morse code. That's how a lot, wow. many of us started in amateur radio. Well, obviously, things have kind of flipped on their head now. Uh, the technician or entry-level license allows you pretty much full amateur privileges in the VHF and UHF parts of the spectrum. That's above the HF. And uh, we'll take a second and kind of describe those layers. Yes. But uh, it gives you full privileges and then selected privileges on little segments of the HF bands uh, and some for Morse code, which hardly anybody uses anymore as a technician. Uh, but other amateurs use it quite a bit. And then uh, there's a little voice segment up on uh, the band uh, referred to as 10 meters. Uh, the general class license in gives you, in addition, uh, privileges for voice, code, and data on most of the HF portions of the amateur bands. Um, and then the extra class license has a few segments in each of those bands that's reserved just for extras. And those tend to be at the very bottom of the voice band or the code band as the case may be. Yes, and let's take a second here to explain what we mean when we say high frequency. Sure, uh, yeah, because high, those are you know, um, very high. Uh, when, when in the early days of radio, um, the, the, uh, the areas around what is now the AM broadcast band were considered about the only useful segments. Actually, nothing was considered useful when it was first discovered until uh, guys like Marconi and some others figured out that you could actually uh, send messages from one place to another. It had been mostly a theoretical exercise. Um, and, uh, and then everything above that spectrum was considered more or less useless or it was given to amateurs so that we could do with it what we wanted. Well, we showed some of the things that could be done, and they said, oh, heck, we better take some of those back and use them for other purposes. So gradually, the bands that amateurs uh, had access to got shrunk or taken away, and we, we retained little segments in various places. Uh, the uh, above the AM band, it's actually above, technically above three megahertz, or, and, and a megahertz is just, it's, it's a thousand kilohertz, you know, mega, kilo, you know, the Greek prefixes. And um, from three to 30 megahertz is considered the HF band. It's also called the shortwave band because uh, the wavelengths um, are shorter than they are for the AM broadcast band, which is kind of what they originally had in mind when they were thinking of radio. And then uh, above that, say from uh, 30 megahertz to 300 megahertz, they consider, well, that's not just high frequency, that's very high frequency or VHF. And when you got from above 300 up to about 3000 
megahertz or three gigahertz. They said, well, that's ultra high, that's UHF, okay? Well, now you hear those terms. And in fact, uh, when somebody refers to the VHF or UHF spectrum, uh, they're talking about those ranges from 30 to 300 megahertz or 300 to 3000. Um, and then when you go beyond that, there are more terms that you can go on, you know, we're up into the, into the terahertz or the millimeter wave bands and so on. Um, I've had a lot of fun actually working up through 10,000 megahertz, uh, which Whoa. is about the same. It's, it's near the allocation where po some of the police radar operates. But theirs goes about a mile. I've gone, I've gone hundreds and hundreds of miles working multiple states with a couple of watts and a two-foot dish on a mountaintop. So uh, we, we can do things with radio that most users can't do just because we have the freedom as part of our license grant to experiment, to build our own antennas, build our own equipment or modify our equipment. And all of this uh, to further the level of knowledge about radio and also of course to provide public service, which is one of the main reasons that amateur radio exists. So when we're talking HF, we're talking basically three to 30 megahertz and again, almost interchangeable with what you call the shortwave bands. So we'll focus on that because that's the subject of your, of your presentation. Yes. yes, although I will say that some things like talking to the International Space Station, mm -hmm. even though they're not part of my, part of the high frequency band, they're still really, really cool. So. Yeah, yep. and that, that, that's actually a, uh, uh, there's, there are things called repeaters and they, they're generally used in VHF and UHF and above. Um, and a repeater is basically an automated relay station that's placed up in some uh, topographically advantaged location. Could be the top of a tall building, could be a mountaintop, whatever it may be. And it allows people who might not be able to talk to each other over the radio to talk through this relay station where you go in on one frequency and come out on another. Uh, well, the space station has something just like that. It was put in only in the last few months. And in fact, one of my microwave friends down in, uh, in San Diego, Carrie uh, Banke, built, designed and built the power supply that runs wow. that system. And uh, uh, he, he was thinking of the astronauts because he also put in some USB uh, power connections in there. And not only does it do the things it was supposed to do, like run from both the Russian side and the American side with their different power requirements, but also he put in some extra USB connectors so the astronauts could charge their devices and they love it. So, but that, that is, that is uh, uh, you go in on UHF and come out on VHF. So that's, it's not HF, but it is a way to talk to the space station. There are, there are other amateur satellites, both already up there and in process, uh, that also have not exactly repeaters, but they have translators that will take a signal from one part of the band and uh, spectrum and put it out on another one so amateurs can use it to talk back and forth. I've done a little of that, too. Yes, and just a note, um, the reason why shortwave or high frequency is so interesting is because radio waves can bounce off the ionosphere and cross the earth while the by very high and ultra high are direct line of sight, which is why they need repeaters to cross the world. Because That's right. Bounce. That's right. Uh, the ionosphere, uh, a layer of the, of the uh, above our, our most of our atmosphere where the sun's radiation 
creates uh, ions, which are basically, you separate the electrons from, the, from their atoms, you rip one or two of them off, and they become electrically charged. And uh, it has the ability to refract or bend radio waves. And if they bend just right, they'll go back down to Earth somewhere far from where they started. Uh, you get up high enough and they don't refract anymore. They just keep going out into space, which is good if you're doing satellite communication, but for terrestrial, it does limit you. So the HF is unique in that regard, which is why the uh, most of the uh, foreign uh, broadcasters for so long uh, maintained uh, HF stations around the world, uh, whether it was, you know, Radio Havana or, uh, you know, or, uh, yeah. you know, the various, uh, the various countries have their HF radio spectrum. Now you're finding some of those stations are shutting down because of course they take manpower, they take electrical power requirements, it's costly. And with internet radio, if you will, fewer and fewer people are using uh, AM broadcasts to receive their news and information. It's kind of too bad because um, really once that radio station is operating, it doesn't take a lot of infrastructure other than having power available uh, to get signals to places that otherwise might not have any coverage at all. Uh, whereas with the internet, you need, you need infrastructure to be able to yes. uh, send and receive. So uh, we, we look at radio as kind of a, you know, independent uh, of the normal infrastructure requirements, uh, which is one of the things that makes amateur radio particularly useful in case of disaster where that infrastructure is either overloaded or in severe cases damaged to the point where it doesn't work anymore. Yes. And shoot. So could you please explain to me like what got you into radio? I kind of thought that question might come up. Uh, I was uh, before radio, uh, I was a Boy Scout, and one of the things that uh, we used to do was, were these competitions. Uh, they were called field days, and the Scout troops would gather, and uh, they would do uh, various competitions. And one of them was a, a signaling competition where we used Morse code. But instead of sending it with audio like we usually do now, uh, it was sent with big flags. And you, know, you did a dip to the right was a dit, oh. and a dip to the left was a daw. Well, I became the, uh, the receiver on the signaling team. And we used to win pretty much all the time. We, we had pretty, I had a good guy sending, and I had a scribe to write it down. I'd just read the characters as I saw the flags going on the other side. And uh, that came in handy later on when I was in high school. And a couple of friends were into amateur radio and they were showing me what they were doing. And I thought, hey, this is pretty interesting. Um, I was always interested in technology. It didn't end up being my career, but uh, it did for a lot of other amateur radio operators. And uh, so I uh, had the Morse code and able to pass the, uh, the first test and studied for the written. And we, uh, we got the license and then got on the air with our little crystal controlled radio and uh, you know some wire in the air and started talking to different states around the country and even a couple of foreign countries. So that, uh, that got me hooked. Uh, then when I got out of high school and got into UCLA, I uh, joined and later became president of the UCLA Radio Club. And they had a station up in, uh, in Bolter Hall, which was the physics building. 
and we uh, we made some vast improvements to that station over time, and uh, uh, got quite a bit of uh, quite a bit of uh, airplay, <laughs> if you will, uh, in between classes. Um, but I think one of the things that helped me really stay in amateur radio and get a good start was I joined a local radio club. It was called the West Valley Amateur Radio Club. There were no adults, unlike most clubs. It was almost wow. all, you know, teenagers and, you know, high school and college students. And they were very competitive. And there is a competitive aspect to amateur radio, as there is with many other sport. In fact, it's called radio sport around the world. And uh, uh, amateur radio has its own field day. Unlike the Boy Scout field day, this one involves uh, typically setting up at some remote location using uh, power sources other than the commercial mains, uh, putting up antennas that are set up temporarily, and for a 24-hour period, seeing how many stations you can contact and uh, exchange information with and log accurately uh, in that 24-hour in that period. And this club that I got involved with, we got very seriously into that. And uh, we used to enter with uh, four transmitters. Uh, we had four, four simultaneous stations going. And compared with all the other stations in the country, um, uh, six out of seven years we did that, we were first place in the country. So wow. they all took it very seriously. And I think a great indicator of how much that affected us is that most of the guys and, and it was mostly guys. There's one young lady there in the group who later became uh, chairman of the double uh, E department at uh, Cal State Northridge. Uh, but uh, most of the guys ended up staying in amateur radio and thriving. I mean, becoming well-known, uh, traveling around the world as I've had a chance to do some of and uh, doing competitions and presentations and so on. So it's fun to see, you know, here we are 50 some years later and the guys are still doing it and still having fun. But that, you know, getting into a good club once you get licensed is a really great start because you have people around you who can answer your questions, who can show you yes. their stations, who can maybe help you if you need to. And there are a number of things you do in amateur radio that need somebody else to help you with it, maybe putting up an antenna, solving a particular problem, tracing down some interference, whatever it may be. Having a couple <laughs> of people there to help can be really good. And clubs are a prime source for uh, training, for experience, and just for, you know, building up a, uh, a cadre of friends who can help you out when you need it, and you end up helping them as well. So you would say the club is the formative place where you, where you properly get deep into amateur radio. It's where I you think go it's to... absolutely the best place, yes. I mean, there are people who are in very remote locations, and there are no clubs, and uh, with technology today, uh, there are certainly more opportunities to interact with people who aren't in your local area, just as you know, you're doing on, on uh, Zoom and, and other, uh, other media. But back then, there really wasn't so much. So if, if there wasn't a local club, you didn't have a lot of people you could talk to about ah, it. So yeah. uh, that's, yeah, but still today, having a, having a local club is, I think, a great thing to, it's a great start for amateur radio, and it will, it will make, help you enjoy it more if you get into one. And how did you go from going from a club and being a DXer to joining the ARL proper? Okay, uh, uh, two terms. DX, yes. by the way, for those who don't know, it means uh, distance. It's an abbreviation for distance, and it means trying to work mostly, you know, stations in other countries and uh, 
we've had a lot of fun doing that. The ARRL, or American Radio Relay League, is actually, it's a national association, just like you have uh, AOPA, the Amer uh, Aircraft Owners and Pilots Association, for those who fly. I used to be a member of that as well. And they are a resource, a technical resource. Uh, they are a lobbying group to try and protect the interests of amateurs uh, and amateur radio. They help promote, they help train, uh, they help improve the operating skills and so on. They sponsor various activities on the air. Uh, they publish uh, educational material. I actually joined the league very shortly after becoming licensed. And, uh, and then while I was in college, uh, made the eight quarterly payments and became a life member of the league, which I guess turned out to be pretty good because I'm still here. <laughs> and, uh, and then actually uh, about, uh, what was it 2008? I was persuaded to run for one of the uh, board positions and uh, won, and I was vice director for the ARL Southwestern Division for nine years. And that was both very educational and also it gave me an opportunity as a representative of the league to go around and visit so many of these clubs that we're talking about and oh. see how different clubs handle things. I would visit their field day stations. I would go and talk at their meetings. and. Uh, it really expanded the number of folks that I knew and the number of folks I could talk with. And that, that was very cool as well. Southwestern Division included pretty much all Southern California plus the state of Arizona. So right now we are in the Southwest Division. We are in the Southwestern Division and in the Los Angeles section. Uh, the, the league has 15 uh, divisions which are basically to elect people to the board. And the board is really a policy-making uh, organization, over, policy-making and oversight. But the actual day-to-day -day operations of the league's programs rest with the sections of which most of the sections are just states. In some states, uh, they're broken up into two or three sections, you know, uh, uh, Northern Florida, South Florida, West I Central see. Florida, and so on. California, uh, being the most populous state, uh, both in terms of people in general, and of course, with amateur radio operators, we have about 10% of all the hams in the US. Uh, we, uh, we have eight sections and actually wow. several, several divisions. So uh, at Los Angeles section is actually the only section in the U.S. that is one county. Again, most sections are whole states. We're one county, but, you know, with 10 million people and uh, tens of thousands of amateurs, that kind of makes sense. So there must be a lot of support and clubs here in L.A. to warrant one section. There are many clubs, and uh, in fact... Uh, one of the things you can do on the league's website, which is ARRL.org, is you can go and put in your, your zip code or your location or a town and find clubs, affiliated clubs in your area, those that have chosen to keep their information current with the league. And uh, they'll tell you when they meet and, and so on uh, and how to contact them. So it helps somebody who's new to the uh, amateur radio service to find clubs in their area, get an idea of what their specialties are, if any. And going back to the disaster response, I want to ask you about how did LA, the LA sector, help and coordinate during the 1994 Northridge earthquake, which was terrible down here? Well, um, 
I know several friends. Now, I was not here at that time, by the way. I was. I had a four-year uh, assignment uh, out of the country, uh, from or actually out of the uh, off the mainland. I was in the in the Honolulu office uh, from 1992 to 1996, and I was actually living up on the North Shore with a big HF station, right. <laughs> six big towers, and lots of antennas, and talking all around the world. Uh, so I was not here for that, but. I know a number of amateurs who use their stations to uh, primarily to handle health and welfare traffic. And that is people wanting to either find out how a relative is or to let other people know how they are. Uh, the first responders had their own uh, radio systems and uh, the quake did not really take those down, uh, but certainly phone lines in some cases were jammed. Uh, this was a case of overload. You know, when, it, when an earthquake, either everybody picks up the phone to say, did you feel it or how are you? Uh, are you doing okay? Or the phones get knocked off the hook. As far as the phone oh. system concerned, it's the same thing. The phone is busy and enough people do that and the, they stop working. So uh, amateurs here were uh, getting information from, uh, from uh, local folks and passing it on to people out of the area and in many cases, collecting inquiries from people out of the area and then trying to find out responses and then use the radio to get them back. So uh, health and welfare inquiries are one of the things that amateur radio has long done. And, and not just the Northridge earthquake, but many of the, uh, the hurricanes and, and so on. Uh, one of my friends um, went down to, uh, to uh, Mississippi during Hurricane Katrina. Oh, right wow. after Hurricane Katrina, and help reestablish communications among the various uh, shelters that were set up by the Red Cross, getting back to their their uh, state headquarters, and they used HF radio for that. Yes, HF radio can help bind connect everyone when normal power, normal systems are knocked off. Yeah, it can it can jump that that missing link that last mile where people in the area most affected can't communicate uh, because the infrastructure is gone. Uh, so you can use amateur radio and sometimes it's VHF and UHF and sometimes it's HF depending on how wide an area is impacted. And uh, we can get, uh, you know, we can jump that gap and send communication into and out of the affected area. Well, unfortunately that's all the time we have here today. So I want to thank you so much, Marty, for your time. And I hope you have a great day in sunny L.A. More well, info sorry, more info can be found on kpcradio.com. This has been Electronic Echoes with Aaron Castillo. I hope to see you all next week. Do you have any last words? Or? Okay. Well, uh, thank you for having me, Aaron. And uh, I would encourage anybody interested to uh, visit the ARRL.org website to get some initial, initial information. You can also find out where exams and classes are being given on that site. And uh, even with our COVID shutdown currently happening, both training and exams are being given over uh, remotely. So uh, it doesn't mean you can't get your license. A lot of people are doing that. And uh, Having people on the air means uh, one more way you can talk to them, even if you can't uh, visit them in person. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Aaron. Appreciate oh, the opportunity.